This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club podcast. Today with me, a very special guest, Jared Arnold. Jared is our COO and he basically runs the whole firm and helps with everything. And we have him on every once in a while to help pontificate and elucidate and talk us through what is happening in the world. It's always a fun conversation. He has a different perspective than I do. He's a younger person, which is always good. And we're going to dig into some of the maybe financial perceptions versus reality that we're seeing play out in the market. He speaks with a lot of investors and potential investors as part of his job. And so I think has a really good pulse of what's happening within the marketplace of investor sentiment and psyche. So we'll move around a little bit, but those are some of the main topics we're going to hit on. Jared, thanks as always for coming on, man. Yeah, man, I appreciate you having me on. And I'm one of the few people that you have on the show that gets the inside look of what all goes on behind the scenes. And it's a lot of work. So I appreciate everything that you do here and everything that Lily puts into it as well. I know it's not a not an easy job, but after speaking to a lot of investors about the show, I think it's you know, a great resource for a lot of people. Right. And so maybe let's start there. So to give people some context, we have about 5,000 accredited investors who receive our investment opportunities. And then we have roughly 10,000 people that get our investor newsletter, right? We're recording this in October of, of 2023. We recently sent out an investment opportunity 
talk about the performance. Like, how did it do in terms of open rate, click through rate versus maybe 12 months ago, 24 months ago, six months ago, and what that tells you in your mind? You could take a look at this from a couple different perspectives. Open rate was fantastic, uh, which we're, we're happy to see because it means people are still uh, engaged with Excelsior. Uh, click-through rate and reopen rate is where we were disappointed here in fall of 2023. It just was pretty abysmal compared to what we were looking at 12 to 24 months ago where we were filling up an equity raise within 12 or 20, 24 hours. It was much more difficult. We were on the phone a lot more reaching out a lot more outbound than we were 12 to 24 months ago. And the feedback is just that a lot of people are sitting on the sidelines, sitting on cash. We were competing with 5.5% risk-free, and that's just a, a tougher sell than it was 12 to 24 months ago. And I think that's the key, right, is for the first time since I've been in this business, which is roughly 12 years, and certainly the first time since you've been on board, there's a viable alternative now to investing into real estate. You reference five and a half. So you can get rewarded by holding cash, by holding treasuries, by holding private credit, corporate bonds, et cetera. Yield is back in play for liquid assets. And it's really a game changer for a lot of people, especially within real estate. Now, you and I can come up with a lot of pushback there. And I think it's, I think it's reasonable to say that, well, if inflation is 3% or 4%, you're really only getting one and a half or two or three on an adjusted basis. And we obviously incorporate tax savings and appreciation and all of those components, which mean that your total return is different than what you might be getting by holding on to cash. But for our investors, I think it's a novelty of the idea. And it's just so new to them that it's just it seems like it's taking some adjusting for them in this new reality does that seem fair yeah absolutely and there's a disconnect i think between perception and reality that i think we can't discount here in this scenario say more about that what do you mean just that inflation i think these days the headlines are we topped out at nine nine point eight percent and we're somewhere around the four percent right now and i think if you talk to our investor base, or even just folks that are in a similar position as me, early 30s, middle of the road millennial trying to get life started. It seems like it's a lot more, um, it's a lot stronger than that, at least it feels that way. And even if it's not, I think folks tend to fall back on their perception and not necessarily the reality of the situation. And we're feeling that pressure from an inflationary perspective. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm 41 and... There's obviously been this huge conversation around inflation for the last 12 months. And I have two children. They're both in private school. I own a home. I've been self-insured from a healthcare perspective for a number of years now. And for anyone who's been paying for healthcare or paying for private education or just tuition in general, or been in the you know single family home residential world, inflation has felt real for 10 plus years in terms of what it is versus what CPI would tell you. And it seems like it's now proliferating into the rest of the population who maybe didn't have exposure to those areas and they're feeling it. But for a lot of us, it's felt real for a while that when I got into this world, I thought, 
a hundred thousand dollars a year would be really meaningful and it would provide for a very kind of comfortable lifestyle. And that number seems to just double every year in terms of what it takes to live the lifestyle that I had growing up, et cetera. It's interesting. You're in the middle, but we have younger people who work with us that just the concept of home ownership is so out of reach for them, both in an inventory and a dollar basis that it's not even something to entertain. And, and I guess you're probably somewhere in the middle of those two perceptions. Yeah. So maybe talk about, not to date you, but what do the 30-year-olds of the world think these days? Yeah, from my perspective, I am right there in that middle where a lot of folks my age were able to buy a home in 2020, 2021, 2022. Prices were going up, but rates were super low and it was affordable from that perspective. Whereas now home prices have remained high. I watch Nashville home market pretty closely. Home prices have remained high. They've maybe come down off that high just slightly, but the rates have skyrocketed. And it's playing a, a massive factor for those that are you know, kind of on, on my age, a little bit younger. So I'm 32. So those in the late 20s that didn't buy a home in, over the last three years, I mean, they're essentially priced out right now and for the foreseeable future, I think, as well. Yeah, I think the corollary for my generation who are in their 40s would be if you didn't buy a second home or if you didn't buy your forever home over the last five years, now you've missed that boat. Mortgages are 7% or 8% for jumbos. And these second home markets are just outrageous and they don't seem to be changing anytime soon. And then that window has really passed. And so I think for all of us, the challenge is to have that perspective of looking up and down and being able to say, gosh, like I was able to achieve this and I hit this window really well, but I missed out on this. But if you look at folks who are in their 20s, it's pretty daunting, frankly. And there's a really good stat. So Lily, who's our marketing person put together some talking points for us. And I think this one is really good. So it says a new survey from Bankrate finds that the average American believes they need to earn $233,000 per year to feel financially secure and $483,000 per year to feel financially free. So that's three and nine times respectively as much as the average US worker actually made in 2021, which is roughly 75 thousand dollars. So to your point earlier, there is this disconnect between kind of perception and reality. And I'm curious, you know, as a 40 year old, I grew up in an analog world. I'm not a digital native. I remember a world before internet and social media and phones, etc. But for someone like you or younger, how much do you think that plays into it? The social media component and what the algorithm is pushing to you versus what is real? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's a huge factor. I broke it down into a couple of different factors that I think are really important. And social media, I think, is probably one of the top two. And I know this from talking to, I'm in an age in my life now where we're doing small groups and premarital counseling and all these different items. And I'm talking to a lot of friends that are in the similar boat as myself and asking good questions. And I think when we talk about it, what we come to is that the comparing yourself to that top 1% or top 1%, I think has been there for a while now. You think about some of the TV shows that were on MTV back in the late 90s, early 2000s, and these lavish lifestyles and whatnot. That's been there for a while. It's a little bit more in your face now with social media than it was before, but that's been there. What I think is 
is more prevalent now for our age group is this whole idea of keeping up with the Joneses is a lot more inflated than it was prior. You're not looking at comparing yourself to your neighbor and those within your community. You're looking at comparing yourself into your greater community as a whole. And with social media, I I think the, the biggest impact from social media is that you see friends who have different priorities, right? Maybe a couple loves to travel and they're traveling every other month, or you see a couple that has a nice boat and they're out on it all the time or buying other expensive items, or you see another couple who has four kids and they're always out doing things with their kids as well. And you pick apart each of those items that you see from social media and you try to combine it into your life as a whole. So you don't just want the boat, you want the vacation, you want the family, you want it all. And we've created this ultimate consumer society where we're just feeding off of each other and our household expenses are certainly getting out of control. And you're seeing that come through now, I think, in some of the the credit card debt statistics, which is an unfortunate time because you're also seeing the interest rates go up on that as well. So that's one of the the top two, at least from my perspective, one of the top two um, factors that have led to this whole disconnect between what is security or financial freedom and what is actual. Yeah, I I, I would choose one part of your statement in particular, which is the debt component. There's been a lot of articles about the size of credit card debt today. And I think the rates are north of 20%, right? Yeah. You put it all together. I think they're mid-20s now. Yeah, which is just terrifying. I was actually talking to my 10-year-old about interest, what it means, what our mortgage is versus what a credit card charges and how pernicious it can be. But it seems like, to your point, we've become a consumer-oriented economy, and we've relied on the consumer to get us through these times and to, and to be the driver behind our GDP in a lot of ways. And I can't help but wonder if there's a synergy between the U.S. as a whole and how we think about debt in terms of our national debt And what that trickle-down effect is on a household basis where for a long time, the idea was that debt didn't matter. You should lever up. You should go out and and buy the boat, buy the house, and and you can worry about it later. There are a lot of people saying that that chicken was going to come home to roost. And maybe now is that time. There seems to be much more concern around the national debt, much more concern about the consumer debt and what all that means. What are your thoughts there? No, I absolutely agree. You and I are both big fans of the All In podcast. They've been talking about that as well a lot lately. When I said that social media is one of the top two, the acceptability of debt, I think, is the other one. So it's a one-two punch there. I saw a video on social media the other day where they were interviewing some customers at a Burger King from like the 80s, and they were using credit cards for the first time. And it was just this novel idea that you could use a credit card to buy a $3 burger. Whereas now, I think it's debt, using debt is just mainstream, right? It's it, Everyone does it. It's a massive acceptability across the board, uh, both on the government side and our individual consumer side. And I'm not a Dave Ramsey guy by any means. He's got one of the biggest followings on social media. I'm not saying that debt is bad and you shouldn't do it. But from my perspective, debt is a tool to earn income. And that's the way it should be 
to be used and selfish plug here for Excelsior and buying real estate. But that's where debt is important is to give you give yourself some sort of financial freedom, not to put yourself in a deeper hole. Yeah, I think there's a difference between good debt and bad debt, right? And the ability to have credit and to use leverage to accelerate returns and wealth creation is one thing, right? But it's different when it's personal debt or personally guaranteed or full recourse or is used to buy a super depreciating asset right off the bat or is not going to ultimately lead to more returns in the future. Those are two very different things. But again, our culture, our society, we do not have financial literacy component in our schools and it's just not part of our culture. And frankly, we don't really talk about money much in a lot of families. I know we didn't growing up. We do in our family today, but it was just a topic that wasn't brought about and it was really considered impolite in a lot of ways. So I'm hopeful that social media will maybe change that. Are you seeing more financial literacy or financial topics being brought up amongst younger people across TikTok or Instagram and podcasts, et cetera? We put together a free resource available exclusively to our podcast listeners. If you're looking for strategies to safeguard your portfolio against inflation, you want to check out our latest guide on the best alternative investments to consider. Head to ExcelsiorGP.com slash download to learn more. Yeah, absolutely. I think the difficult part that about that is that there's a lot of noise, right? And there's a lot of folks out there that have become very popular. I mentioned Dave Ramsey out there earlier by saying that there's this one size fits all solution to your financial issues. Um, you know, fire, you know, debt, these different types of, of ways to look at it. That it's called personal finance for a reason because it's very personal. And I think there are certain basics that are not taught in school that should be that can be applied across the board. But in terms of this one size fits all, it's just not, that's not the case. And so it really is about learning those basics, finding ways to fit that within what you're trying to prioritize, what you're trying to solve for, and then letting it go and do it as thing. I'm a big budgeter personally, see that Excelsior, see that in my personal life. Most of the folks that I talk to in, in my sphere don't even know how to go about budget budgeting. And it's not that... It's this simple solution where you look at how your friends do it, and that's the way that it works for you. There's multiple ways to go about it. It's just important to do it. And I think that's what's missing, at least in my age group, is that people don't know how to do it, and so they're just not going to even approach it. Yeah, to take it a step farther, we could argue about the pros and cons of having a household budget. I think they can be really useful. I think they can also be contentious and, and maybe don't solve for much if you don't know how to use them appropriately. But to go to take the conversation, I think to where it should start is like, what's your value system? What are your priorities personally and, and as a family? And are you allocating resources to achieve those priorities? Right. If education is super important to you, are you allocating resources to school and to re- to private school if that's where you think money should be spent wisely, or? Is that not a priority for you? Are trips and experiences really important for you? Or is it more about making sure that you've got the best home that you can have or et cetera? There's really not a huge conversation around what your family values are and what your priorities are and then how you allocate your time and money towards them. That doesn't really be to, uh, 
seem to be a thing that a lot of American families discuss at all. Absolutely. You mentioned that you guys didn't grow up talking about money. We didn't either. There were certain aspects of money that maybe got brought up, right? Working hard. We had chores that we got minimal amounts paid for and things like that. I think we would get a quarter for sweeping the upstairs or something. There were certain more work hard driven aspects to finances that we were taught, but we didn't talk about it. And one of the things that surprised me in a good way when I first started working for Excelsior is you took me to a family office conference. And the one seminar that I sat in on was talking about finances with that next generation and talking about the responsibility and how they went about that, talking about the different investments and just how they spoke to that next generation about that responsibility and the finances of the family. And that's something that should be instilled across across all different income earner tax rate type tax bracket type scenarios. That's not just a family office thing that should be implemented across the board. You brought up education as well. I had one class when I was in high school that talked about personal finances, and it was called consumer education, Uh, heavy emphasis on the word consumer. There was no budgeting, investing, that sort of thing. They, They taught you how to stroke checks and to balance your checkbook and things like that, where those are important, don't get me wrong, but there was a lot more education to be had that we're seeing come out now that we just haven't focused on for the last 20 years at least. Yeah. Well, I think it, there really hasn't been a need to. And your point about how family offices think about this, there is this misconception that you need X amount of dollars to do this, where in reality, you can bring that mindset and framework of having a multi-generational corpus of assets. It can be $100, but you could still have the right mindset of what you want to do with that money. I think most people feel you know, that they're a victim of these larger things occurring that they have no real control over. And the cool part about what's happening now is through social media and podcasts and books, etc. I think people are getting smarter and realizing that they do have some agency over their choices and lives. But yeah, it's a big challenge where, you know, for me, I, I think a, a, a really difficult part was not having an appreciation of what an income would deliver in terms of quality of life or what cost of life really was. And these decisions you make as you're young in terms of education and subject matter expertise or professional development, I think we do them, we do people a disservice by not telling them, hey, being XYZ practitioner is great, but you make this. Yeah. And this amount of money means that after taxes on an adjusted basis, your take home is this. And that's this house costs this much, and these schools cost this much, and this club costs this much, and travel costs this much. And there seems to be just this huge disconnect there where people don't have a real idea of, well, I grew up really comfortably. Well, we just talked about how inflation has changed things, the world has really changed. And just because your parents were able to achieve a certain quality of life you may not be able to. And for the first time, and this gets thrown around a lot, but within my generation, we don't have the expectation that we're going to live a better life than our parents for the first time really in American recorded history. And so there's this unease, it seems like, in the marketplace of, are we making these right choices? Do we have the right leadership? How do we give our children more opportunity and a better opportunity? And unfortunately, there's not a lot of great answers out there. 
Yeah, and I think that's important as well is just that mindset, right? One of the things that's made America, in my opinion, so great over the last couple of centuries is that we've always strived for better, more, make an impact in the world. And you're starting to see, at least in, in, I think you're starting to see in my generation and younger, that expectation that, hey, my life may not be as great as my parents was. And that change in mindset can be insanely important. And I think we, we need to find a way to get back to that because that's how we continue to get better and do better as a country as a whole. I think that's a really good point. You also brought up a really good point about just the disconnect in, uh, from a college perspective and taking on the risk of, I'm not saying student loans are bad, but taking on that risk of what is that degree going to produce? And I've seen that across folks in my generation is that when we were going off to college, it was go to college, get a degree. That's it. Go to college, get a degree. It didn't matter what college. It didn't matter what degree. And so a lot of my friends went to more expensive schools and got degrees that weren't going to produce the level of income that would be required to pay off the debt that they then took on. And we've seen a reprieve from that for the last couple of years with student debt paybacks being paused. But now that's just was released, I think, this month where payments are beginning again. And so I think that's going to really start to take a hold and within my age group, within society of that, they have these degrees that they were told they need to go get. And now they have the student debt that they have to pay back as well. That doesn't really, the risk reward doesn't equate there. Yeah. And this goes into a policy discussion. I think for a long time in America, starting in the nineties, there was this position that the government had that we should incentivize and reward home ownership and college for everybody. And I think we've seen this fallout and realization that those can be great things, but it maybe doesn't serve the entire country to have everybody pursue them, right? Home ownership has now become super expensive. There was a bubble in 08, obviously. We're still reeling from that, I think, in a lot of ways. And then there's clearly a bubble within education where we have all these schools Tuition is outrageous. I was talking to my financial advisor who said that my 10-year-old, if he goes to NYU eventually, which is the most expensive school in the country when you account for room and board just with New York and everything, north of $100,000 a year, that's just not, that's not attainable for a lot of people. And I don't, and even more so, I don't think it should be the goal for everybody to do that necessarily. And so- some of this starts with what's happening in Washington and changing those incentives, structures, and policies to reflect the reality and the lessons we've learned over the last two generations. Yeah. And back to the educating kids as well. No one had those conversations with my generation when they were getting ready to go to college. So I think it's really important that we just go back to that education. And it's not, I know a lot of very wealthy people that went into HVAC business or plumbing business right out of high school, and now they own a couple of locations and they're doing very well. And that's not that's certainly not a bad thing. If that's where your mindset goes and that's what works for you, that's what you should be doing and not going to get some degree that won't lend itself to producing income and is going to set you back to some degree. So maybe this has been a pretty dour conversation Maybe let's have some positivity here. Absolutely. When people ask about, when they throw around the idea, like you mentioned fire and financial freedom, and you see these LinkedIn people who say, I help people achieve financial freedom through investing into real estate. I think it's really misleading. 
and very confusing to people. I think real estate should be a component of people's portfolio, obviously, and I'm biased and they can do incredible things. But if you really want to talk about like, first off, financial freedom, people I know who are very successful, they have some common attributes. They took massive concentration risk. They utilized some form of leverage, financial, social, etc., And they had really high risk-taking behavior, usually, or appetite for risk, rather. So if you take all those things together, plus what we've seen is capable with technology today, I think today is a great time to be an entrepreneur. And especially during, we're not in a recession technically, but in a challenging time, some of the best ideas are born. And you and I both know, I mean, real estate is a very... It, it, it's a competitive business, but if you just create like a better mousetrap, like we've done in a lot of ways, you don't need to come up with some incredible idea to have a thriving business. And so in a lot of ways, it, it's a great time to go out there and start a business and be an entrepreneur. And I think that's probably like the best advice I can give to younger people is, especially when you're young, you don't have a lot to lose in terms of your downside risk, should go out and try something. I'd love to hear your thoughts coming from the public accounting world, pretty risk-adverse population set typically. So now you've been part of this entrepreneurial organization for five years. Like, What's your feedback, lessons learned? What's your impression then? What would you tell your 25-year-old self? Yeah, there's a huge argument going on Twitter right now on whether or not a nine-to-five is good or if everyone should be an entrepreneur. And again, it's I think it's a personal decision on what fits your personality type. I know a lot of CPAs that are very intelligent people that have no business being entrepreneurs. And I know a lot of folks that have been sitting at a desk working at nine to five, that they would be much better served going out there and working for themselves. And I think it's a personal decision. I don't know that I have a a massive opinion, but I, I wish that more folks my age, especially with that I bump shoulders with, right? Like I've been in the corporate environment. I wish those folks would have the confidence to take that step, especially in a time like now. You and I have talked about the fact that there's not very many 50-year-olds in real estate because of 08 and where they were in their life at that time. Now is a time where, specifically in real estate, since we're in that business, we're seeing a lot of folks leave that industry. And so there's, I think there's an opportunity there in the long run. Maybe it's going to be a tough two or three years, but or however long, but there's an opportunity to enter that industry or something else that interests you and make a lasting impact and a lasting career within that industry. Yeah. I would encourage people to, if you are younger, I think working a corporate gig can be really helpful and useful in terms of skill set, networking. But if you're ultimately looking for something bigger, like you live in the most entrepreneurial country in the world and we have the best entrepreneurial ecosystem best startup culture, you're in a great position. And if you can take on that risk, go out and try something, like you'll be rewarded. And the nice thing about the US versus some other places that I've spent time or know people, especially through YPO, failure is not the end game. Like it's not the end of your journey. Most entrepreneurs I know, including myself, have had multiple failures. And you've just got to get comfortable with that. Not any kind of granular advice, but I think a lot of people only see the downside and they probably read the news too much, the financial mainstream news about how bad the world is. I would 
plug in with your entre- local entrepreneurial community and you'll meet some pretty incredible people that are doing some cool things and um, encourage you to go out there and find out more. Well, Jared, I don't really have like a end throughput to this whole entire conversation, but it's been really helpful, I think, to hear your thoughts. Maybe as we round this out, what are you seeing and feeling from our investor community about are they optimistic? Are they pessimistic? We're about to enter into an election year. There's a lot on their minds. What are you seeing and, and feeling from our LP cohort? Yeah, I'm seeing a, a relative amount of, especially when looking at the last couple of years, of short-term pessimism, long-term optimism. So we've got a period here. Some would say we're already in it, quote-unquote, recession. We've been you know, in this environment for the last, call it 12 to 18 months. Certainly things have slowed down from the real estate perspective. And I, th- I think a lot of folks are seeing that for another 12 to call it 24 months, give or take. And then long-term optimism. The U.S. is definitely the place you want to be. U.S. real estate is another top place to park money in the long run. There's going to be some pain in the short term. And I think that's well well discussed uh, on all-in podcasts and other places as well, that there's going to be some short-term pain here and there. It's not going to be maybe widespread is what some people have expected, but there there will be some short-term pain here and there for sure. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think we've deferred the pain for as long as we possibly can over the since really 08, frankly, quantitative easing and these forever wars and our national debt. And we just kept piling on. And then COVID, I think, just maxed everything out in terms of our systems yeah. and our abilities to to manage these burdens that we've been putting on the taxpayer. And now it's time to confront those issues and challenges. And America's dealt with a lot more, frankly, adversity than what this represents. But we need some leadership politically to address them because it's certainly not the country that I want my kids to step into, especially somebody that grew up in the 90s. You know, we had zero national debt, a balanced budget. The economy was ripping. Like we're capable of doing these things, but we can't just keep heaping on more and more debt and kicking the can. We need to get comfortable with having a a painful period to reset, in my opinion. And I think ultimately it'd be better for the long term. Just needs some will in Washington to make it happen. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it's starting to be conceptualized, at least within my walks of life. A lot of folks are talking about being one one issue, single issue voters, because it's so important that we get this figured out. And from my perspective, if, if there is some sort of quote unquote pain, two resources that I've found very helpful for myself are The Millionaire Next Door by Thomas Stanley and William Denko, and then Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. I think setting yourself up for success, knowing your personal finances and psychology that surround that is incredibly important in good times or bad, right? In, in bad times, hunker down to some degree, make sure everything's in order, make sure your priorities are handled. And in good times, expand your balance sheet and grow your net worth and really uh, set yourself up and your genera- next generations up for success. And I found both of those incredibly, incredibly helpful. That's well said and a good stopping point, but you don't get off without a hook. Is Ole Miss going to go to a bowl game this year? They'll go to a bowl game. We 
to my from my perspective, we were upset by Bama a couple weeks ago, which was unfortunate. This was our opportunity. People are saying it's a down year for Bama. I, I think that's overblown a little bit, but this was our shot to to take the SEC West by storm. We'll still go to a bowl year. We're five and one. One one more win, and we're there. Surely we can find one more win in there. The lane train. That's right. Jared, thanks so much for joining us. As always, appreciate it, and look forward to doing it again soon. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.